Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. My guest today is Ben Jealous. In 2008, at the age of 35, he was the youngest person ever chosen to lead the oldest civil rights organization in the United States, the NAACP. He's a former journalist and executive director of the National Newspaper Publishers Association. He's a philanthropist and venture capitalist, and in 2018, he was the Maryland Democratic Party's nominee for governor. Recently, he served as the president of People for the American Way, and this month, he takes over as the head of the Sierra Club. The son of a white father and black mother, his latest book is a memoir that makes the case that racism, as we know it, can be eliminated. It is replete with stories from a very full life, flecked with wisdom from some of the people he's met along the way. At the book's heart is the wisdom Jealous received from his grandmother, who died at the age of 105. Never forget our people were always free, she told him. He has adopted that as the title of his book, which he calls A Parable of American Healing. Ben Jealous and I spoke earlier this month. Because our conversation was recorded earlier, we aren't able to take any calls or online comments. Ben Jealous, welcome back to the show. It's great to talk to you, sir. Thank you, Tom. It's always good to be with you, sir. So let's talk about your grandmother, Mamie Todd Bland. Tell us a little bit about this fascinating person. (laughs) You know, I mean, she was was incredible. It's like the greatest love affair of my life is me and my grandma. Um, And, you know, she was a soldier in the civil rights movement in Baltimore. Uh, She was a leader statewide in Maryland in the war on poverty. And... One of the things that struck me about her when I was young was that she was even more on fire about ending poverty than she was focused on ending racism. Uh, It was it was something that she just was fixated on. She was as outraged, you know, persistent poverty amongst white folks in South Baltimore or in Western Maryland or the Eastern Shore as she was. Uh, about, you know, amongst black folks in West or East Baltimore or the Eastern Shore. And, um, uh, you know, I wanted to understand her better when I started researching this book. She had also left us with these mysteries. Like she would just say, never forget our people were always free. And I was like, you know, as a teenager, I kind of confronted her, Tom. And I was just like, Grandma, uh, three of your grandparents were born into slavery. Like, what are you talking about? And I realized that she didn't. You know, that she both said it with conviction and there was no getting her off of it. But she also didn't know anything other than her mother would say it, her grandmother would say it, her great grandmother would say it. And I needed to figure out when that actually made sense. And in researching the book, I figured that out. Yeah, you're right that uh, you came to understand two riddles that your grandma, Mamie Bland, passed on to you. The first was rebellions or the first rebellions were not slave rebellions, they were colonial rebellions. And then the other, never forget our people were always free, was even more confounding. Um, You you say that she would sort of uh, lay that phrase on you uh, when uh, she needed to divert you uh, from something else that was was going on. So this was a sort of a common phrase, but have you come to to a solid understanding of what that means? Yeah, you know, she would she would usually insert it like when we're talking about, frankly, the history of our family being raped on the plantation. We're very light skinned black folks. I used to joke, Tom, that we were black in the Jeffersonian model of blackness, you know, like Sally Hemings and her kids. 
until I figured out that we descend from Thomas Jefferson's grandma. <laughs> it was like, oh, no, we actually yeah, are black. You really so, are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, no, I went and I dug into it. And you know, the, the mystery, like, it took years to unravel. I, I eventually able to enlist the help of Henry Louis Gates Jr. at Harvard. Um, he said, look, give me your DNA. Uh, I said, well, you know, one of the big mysteries is that we're black folks with an Asian X chromosome. He said, oh, well, that usually means that you're Native American. I was like, okay. And uh, and that would line up with my grandma's stories. And she had told the, the kids that she thought we descended from Pocahontas, like every light-skinned black person in Virginia says that, by the way, um, at least for Southern Virginia, where we're from. And so um, Skip said, give me six months and I'll be back. You know, Henry Louis Gates Jr., Skip Jr., Skip, Skip Gates said, give me, give me six months and I'll be back. In touch well two years later i call skip and i'm like look man you know like i don't need to be on your tv show or anything i just i just like can you just tell me what you figured out and he said well it took us this long but uh you know i'll have everything for you in a month so we met to go through it and what he figured out was that our female kunta kente if you will the beginning of my maternal line my grandmother's mother's 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 mother you know way back um came from madagascar on a slave ship there's only 17 slave ships to come to the United States from Madagascar. 16 out of 17 were piloted by known European pirates. It was not a regular slave trade by any you know, sense. It was a rogue slave trade. It was a pirate slave trade. And it was the product of a century or more long war between European pirates and pirates in Madagascar. The founders of Madagascar are Polynesian. The island was uninhabited until the Polynesians show up, and then they piloted boats over to East Africa and traded with East Africans and brought them over. It's been a Creole population ever since. So our, our X chromosome, it turns out, goes back to Indonesia by way of Polynesia, by way of Madagascar. We descend from African, from you know, Afro-Polynesian pirates uh, who were captured and brought to the U.S. as slaves. And I, I got to tell you, Tom, when I, when I went home to my daughter, you know, who's like favorite Disney character, she was eight, was Pocahontas, like by a mile. And she was very hope, hopeful we'd have confirmation that we're somehow related to Pocahontas. And I said to her, I said, baby, I got bad news. I got good news. Daddy, what's the bad news? We are not a Native American. She's like, not even a little bit. I'm like, not a little bit. What about Pocahontas? Not, not at all, baby. She's like, but grandma, I was like, those are your great grandma stories. Um, she's like, well, what's the good news? I was like, baby, we're pirates. And she's like, oh, that's way cooler. That's way cooler, Dad. <laughs> good save, <laughs> so, Dad. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God, yes. Because you you should have, she was so crestfallen when I said not even a little bit about Pocahontas. But, yes, being a pirate saved the day. But your exploration of these deep, deep roots, I mean, and you find some some pretty wild characters as being distinctly yeah. related Robert to you. E. Lee. Yeah, yeah, Robert, Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was, like, hanging out in the woodshed, you know, back in the tobacco <laughs> shack. And, yeah, like, Jefferson. It was, it was a little wild. Dick yeah. Cheney's in there. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a whole long list of uh, really unlikely people to be related to you. And you make a really interesting observation about the difference between the U.S. and Canada. You say that the U.S. celebrates the melting pot and Canada celebrates the mosaic. So Canada sees the uh, ethnicities of a nation like a quilt. And here in America, we see the very existence of our nation as a cauldron that erases everything that came yeah. before by pouring out a mix that's all the same. So we are not all the same, and it's understanding that that then leads you to this incredible optimism about actually eliminating racism. I'm, uh, draw the connected tissue between those two things. 
What makes me so optimistic about the future of our country is that race, as we understand it, racism as we experience, is something that we actually created here. Anything that we've created, we can uncreate. Um, the you know, my my professor who taught me politics at college, Charles V. Hamilton, who actually was the co-author of Black Power with Stokely Carmichael, put it a different way. He said, you know, politics is a lot like physics. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. That's like, you know, Clinton, Bush, Bush, Obama, you know, um, uh, yeah. Obama, Trump. Um, but the other thing he said is also like physics. Something in motion will return to its original state. And he said, when it comes to race relations, it's, it's, it's always in motion, but we misremember the original state. We think of the original state of race relations as being defined by movies like Roots or Django or 12 Years a Slave, and they invariably show slavery near its end. And he said, the end of something is not the beginning of anything. He said, the origin is way before that. And then he said what my grandma used to say. Before there were slave rebellions, there were colonial rebellions. Figure out the significance of that. And you'll understand where America's headed because we were headed back towards the origin. Well, in the beginning, you know, down in Gloucester, Virginia, was the first rebellion in what is now the United States. It was in 1663. That rebellion was indentured Europeans and enslaved Africans rebelling together. And it kept happening in Virginia. And they, and they tried military response, didn't quite stop it. They tried new laws, didn't quite stop it. And then they reached for the cudgel that is culture. And they literally changed the definition of the word race. Prior to the early 1700s, for more than half a millennia, the word race, or raza as it starts in Italian, meant genus or type when applied to things, or nation or tribe when applied to peoples. People defined by geography, like you might hear something like, we Irish are a mighty race, we Scots are a mighty race. That's the old definition of race. And then in the 1700s, America, the new world, embraces a new idea that the pseudoscientific theory that there are multiple human races that's why people like me are called mulattoes because you know supposedly our parents are like of different species like different human races well mules can't have kids but i got two you know hmm. and, and and again and, just to remind folks your dad is white your mom uh, is black yeah yeah, and they both come from very old American families. In each case, the DNA suggests we've been here for about 400 years. And my dad's family, we know we came over in 1624. And um, and so when you go back and you see there was a time, and sure, people saw color. They recognized they were from different nations. They also saw themselves as fully human. You know, slaves for millennia had been listed uh, as people captured in different places for different reasons and then brought to somewhere else. And that's what the slave roles look like in the 1600s. And Africans were seen as uh, as humans. Um, but by the mid-1700s, all that had changed. And the slave roles don't list uh, Africans as humans. They list, them, they list them as animals. And on those kind of multiple human races kind of theory of race, Negroes were were identified as subhuman, as like the like Caliban and you know the old philosophical texts, the um you know this kind of half human half half ape, um and we were treated as such. But the but you know that the interesting t thing, Tom, is that 
that didn't quite quite work completely either. You think about it for a second, you know, if you look at like the record most cited, if you will, the Boston Massacre is probably Paul Revere's etching. And it looks like white people killing white people. But the other document by a founding father of who was there that day is John Adams, you know, the future president's defense of the Redcoats. He defense, he defended the soldiers that killed all those young Americans in the Boston Massacre. When he described the crowd to the jury trying to get their sympathy, he said that the crowd of the Boston Massacre was Negroes, mulattoes, and Jack Tars. Jack Tars is like the poorest group of white sailors. Negroes and mulattoes, of course, are two descriptions for black people. And so even the you know, American rebellion itself, you know, the, the American re- revolution itself starts with a multi, multiracial rebellion. But ultimately, I think what the origin of our country shows us is that we will ultimately head back to a period where yeah, people see color and people understand people, you know, ancestors came from different nations, but we fundamentally see each other as people and as equals. And we, you know, therefore find it easier to come together to fight in the interest of all our kids. And what really bolstered my optimism, Tom, is as I was researching the book, I figured out that my grandmother's grandfather helped lead such a rebellion right after the Civil War, uniting freedmen and Confederates in the interest of all their kids. Ben Jealous is my guest. His latest book is called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. Our conversation was recorded earlier, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments. And Ben, here's the here's the thing that I I share all of your uh, uh, optimism and good feeling about the possibility of eliminating yeah. the racial strife that has just been, you know, just so corrosive and so uh, horrid for for all these millennia. Um, but you write that the ultimate antidote for this insanity that is racism is to deepen our knowledge of self. And, our, and to understand our national and ethnic origins. And as you say, you know, people can understand the common cause, the common purpose that people of all races, as people have come to know that term, uh, you know, share. But it, it, it doesn't seem to be budging all that much. It doesn't seem to be moving in that direction. In fact, there's uh, all sorts of evidence on a daily basis that it's moving in the opposite direction. Um, How is it that understanding and having, you know, more self-knowledge and understanding of our history and our common cause um, will eventually lead to uh, the reduction or elimination of of this, uh, you know, this terrible curse that is racism? Well, you know, it's um, part of it is the way that it humanizes each of us. You know, we we were talking about sort of the mosaic versus the culture. Right, the the Canadian mosaic versus the American culture, and in Canada, people are really uh, encouraged to celebrate where their family came to Canada from, um, or if they're First Nations, you know that they've been there, uh, you know, forever. And um, and in America, everybody is supposed to kind of be melted at least into these, you know, white, black. Asian, just Asian, you know, Latino, Native American, and the uh, and for whites and blacks, it's especially thorough because lots of us come, you know, come from families that've been here for hundreds of years. But when people figure out where they're from, it can transform them. It happened to my family when we figured out that my grandfather's 
X chromosome goes back to the Lemba people of Sierra Leone. And my grandmother's goes back to uh, the Waka Natola, the, the, the people who founded uh, Madagascar thousands of years ago and are pirates to this day, many of them. Um, and that's, that's important. It's not just to say that, you know, you need to stop saying that you're black or you need to stop saying that you're white. But if we can understand blackness and whiteness of being made up of people of different ethnic origins from different countries, and we, as a society, encourage people to, to get to understand that, then it de-emphasizes race. It returns us all back to seeing each other as people of different nations. And it helps us move beyond the most dehumanizing aspects of that crazy uh, pseudoscientific theory that has haunted our society for so long. Ben Jealous, the new book is called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. We'll have more with Ben Jealous after a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. Stay with us. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is the civil rights activist and scholar Ben Jealous. We're talking about his latest book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. Our conversation was recorded earlier, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments today. So, Ben, we talked about your grandmother, Mamie Bland, who lived to be 105 years old. Uh, and I guess her grandfather, a guy named Edward David Bland, also had an amazing uh, history, and it was one that uh, perhaps shaped uh, Mamie uh, pretty uh, significantly, and it's shaped you as well as you learn more about him. Uh, tell us about uh, Edward David Bland and his remarkable journey. Absolutely. you know, And my grandma, very much his granddaughter, like I'm, you know, her grandson. She had a profound friendship with Barbara Mikulski. She had been one of Barbara Mikulski, one of Barbara Mikulski's mentors when Barbara was a young social worker. My grandmother was a, a leading social worker in Baltimore. And part of their bond was that they were on fire to end poverty. And so I went looking for where that fire came from in my grandmother, because it was what really defined her, was her commitment to ending poverty. And I, what I ran into was the legend of her grandfather and you know, in the family, they would just say, oh, he was a Reconstruction statesman and he was involved in founding Virginia State University. And there was a lot of pride in that. A lot of family members gone to Virginia State. But I started looking at the years, Tom, and it was clear something was wrong because he wasn't a statesman during Reconstruction. He was a statesman in like the early 1880s. And that Reconstruction ended in 1876 with the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, especially in Virginia. That's when the reign of the Terror of the Ku Klux Klan started and things really started to go off a cliff. And then what I realized was that he was a leader actually in a gap between the end of Reconstruction and the start of Jim Crow. It was a transition period. It was a tumultuous period. And I dug further and I realized he had helped build a third party. Uh, and then I started to look into it. And what I realized was this. His... Uh, he was trying to preserve Edward David Bland was the leader of was the leader of the Republicans in Virginia um, 
in like 1879, 1880, 1881, that period. And they were very much, then that was the Radical Progressive Party, it had been the Black-led party in Virginia, and they were trying to hold on to the legacy of their leadership during Reconstruction. And most important to them was holding on to the free public schools that they had created. And in the midst of that struggle, a new white party is created. Uh, working class whites flee the Democratic Party and create a party called the Readjusters. It was a response to wealthy Democrats, wealthy, basically the old plantation owning class, saying that they were going to shut down the new free public schools, which of course benefited more whites than blacks, as there were more in Virginia. Uh, be- and, and, and the reason that, that the wealthy conservatives gave was they couldn't afford those free public schools in the Civil War debt. So the Readjusters were found around the demand that the state negotiate uh, to readjust the terms of the Civil War debt so they could preserve the free public schools. They were there a leader amongst, you know, a leader emerged amongst the readjusters, former Confederate General William B. Mahone. Most of these, most of the readjusters, of course, had either been Confederates or supporters of the Confederate cause. They had just been reenfranchised by the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1876, which was made to prevent a second secession of the South. And um, however, you know, back then officers came from the wealthy like exclusively. And the folks who were rebelling were folks who relied on the free public schools. These were working class folks. These have been the soldiers who defended slavery, but never owned any slaves. And General Mahone was first seen as a class trader for joining them. But he was he was a pragmatist. He owned a Southern Railroad company. And he said, look, we're going to need a populist movement to drive more money into Southern Railroads. So it's better for me to join my workers than to uh, you know, go to war against them. And so he became the head of the Readjuster Party. Well, to my grandmother's grandfather, who was 17, the, when the Battle of Appomattox marked the end of the Civil War. Um, and we should uh, make sure folks understand, this is a, a man born into slavery. Yes, he was born into slavery. Edward David Bland was born into slavery. He was born in his uncle's house. He, he knew that the owner was his father's younger brother. Uh, the owner, Richard Yates Bland, would attempt to protect his father in, in the will. Fred Bland, Edward David's dad, was the only enslaved person mentioned in the owner's will. And Henry, Le- and Henry Louis Gates Jr. helped me understand what was going on, was that the, the owner was dying, and he recognized it as manservant, as he referred to the father, uh, to Edward David Bland's dad, uh, that his manservant was his older brother. And while he didn't have the courage to free him, he was trying to protect him as much as he could. And Richard Yates Bland was a was a proud cousin of Robert E. Lee. So that's the house that Edward David Bland grows up in. And then he, uh, you know, is freed when the war ends. He's 17. And, and here we are, you know, half a lifetime after that, if you will. He's about 34, 35. He's, he's, he's the leader of the Black Republicans in Virginia. And this new party has been created. And its primary purpose is is to defend the free public schools that blacks had created, but now poor whites want to hold on to too. And he approaches the leader of that party. They're called the readjusters. And he would have known that leader, the former Confederate general, William B. Mahone, to be a war criminal in the eyes of black folks of the day. Because at the Battle of the Crater, which could have been the end to the Civil War, had uh, General Mahone not turned 
the Confederacy's fortunes around that day, the way that battle ended was with General Mahone massacring an entire black regiment that had surrendered. So it was not a small deal to mm -hmm. approach that man uh, with a political bargain. But my grandmother's granddad was already four years into fighting the Ku Klux Klan. It was a very violent time. A few years later in his re-election, six people would be killed. And honestly, a former war criminal who shares your political goals and your political courage when you've been fighting with the Klan for five years, like that's not a bad friend to have <laughs> in a whole lot of practical ways. Yeah, but, still a, but still, a a, still a tough call to make, though. I mean, very, very, very. And yet, you know, they're at, in that moment, the um, for both communities, the existential threat was the ending of free public education. And so Edward David Bland approaches William D, you know, William B. Mahone, former general, you know, and Friedman, you know, Edward David Bland says, um, like, we share your goal. Uh, we think we should combine forces. And they agree. And he leads blacks into the readjusters so commandingly that it becomes a majority black political party, still about 40% white, majority black political party led by a former Confederate general and a freedman. And they're phenomenally successful. They take over the governorship in Virginia. They take over the state legislature. They appoint both U.S. senators. And they transform the state very quickly. They abolish the public whipping post. They uh, save the free public schools. They create Virginia State University, the first public HBCU south of the Mason-Dixon. Before Coppin or Bowie or Morgan, there was VSU. They radically expand Virginia Tech, making it the working person's rival to UVA. Uh, and they abolish the poll tax. And that last thing kind of blew my mind because I had thought that the poll tax had been in place, you know, uh, pretty much from, you know, the end of Reconstruction forward. But here it was interrupted. And what I realized, Tom, was a couple things. One, you know, poor white men, white men who uh, didn't own any land, had only had the right to vote since like the mid-1840s, only about 20 years longer than black men. And here we were not 20 years after the end of the Civil War, and the two had had teamed up in a definitive way in multiple states. Uh, Virginia was not the only state that the readjusters took over. And then all of a sudden, I remember that in 1902, in what has always been taught to me was um, strictly about white supremacy, Virginia sewed five voter suppression matters into its state constitution, five voter, excuse me, five voter suppression laws into its state constitution. And one of those was the poll tax. And, uh, and what I realized was that the um, the value of that poll tax to the political establishment in Virginia wasn't just suppressing the black vote. And it would it would uh, disenfranchise eighty percent of blacks. It was also about uh, preventing the the return of a multiracial populist coalition because it also uh, suppressed the votes of half of the white community, specifically the poorer half, specifically the half that was most likely to have been supportive of the readjusters. And that was a much more recent phenomenon. 
And it blew my mind, Tom, because it's like, you know, you know, you say to a group, raise your hand if you were ever taught that in multiple states, not 20 years after the Civil War, freedmen and former Confederate soldiers got together, created new political parties, took over state governments uh, with a pro-workers' rights, pro-public education, pro-civil rights agenda. Like nobody's been taught that. And why not? Because Jim Crow started right after. And what idea would be most threatening to Jim Crow? The idea that there had been transformative, multiracial political coalitions made up, up of the, by the very men that we had been taught were supposed to be at each other's throats, but actually had came together in the interest of all their kids. Ben Jealous' new book is called Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Ben Jealous and I recorded our conversation today earlier, so we can't take any calls or online comments. And so, Ben, there's clearly, uh, it seems to me, a, 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 a line between that story, that uh, fragile alliance between uh, the people in the Readjusters Party and uh, your work with with people on the other side. I mean, you're working uh, when, as a civil rights activist, as a journalist. Um, you've worked, uh, for example, with you have a whole chapter about um, your relationship with Jack Kemp, uh, who who might be you know an unlikely. Uh, colleague, an unlikely uh, person, you know that, that that you could you could work with. Um, you talk about uh, the experience you had uh, working with Bernie Sanders and seeing the kinds of people who were attracted to the Bernie Sanders campaign. There's there's you know uh, resonances of of uh, the readjusters in that uh, in that story yeah. in that narrative. Um, what what is it going to take for for that to be the the overarching narrative, you know, the the, the narrative that is uh, not the one that's uh, snuck in there that we uh, maybe by chance hear about, but rather uh, is the main dominant narrative of what's going on in the country. Part of it is that we got to teach the truth about our history. These rebellions have been systematically eliminated from our narrative as a country, and it's been going on for a long time. You know, Paul Revere literally, uh, you know, drew the definitive etching of the Boston Massacre and he limited all people of color from the uh, from the scene. And yet John Adams describes the crowd when he's defending the Redcoats. And it's clear there were there were black people, there were brown people. It was, you know, for early America, it was a rainbow of folks. The readjusters were a movement that took over multiple state governments and that gap between the end of, of Reconstruction and the start of Jim Crow. We're not taught about them at all. And the uh, and while we are taught a little bit about Bacon's Rebellion, because it happens 100 years before uh, the American Revolution, it's seen as sort of a rehearsal for it. We're not taught, our kids aren't taught that that was one of several rebellions of European indentured servants and African slaves rising up together. And that in the beginning, they were responding to an edict from a king that was condemning all of their children to further misery. And so like we need, you know, that narrative out there and we need to understand how it manifests today. I live in Pasadena, Maryland. It's a beautiful place. My kids and I have lived there for 10 years. I used to keep an apartment in Baltimore now during COVID. I just consolidated back there. And according to the Washington Post, it's supposed to be the most racist community in Maryland. Kathy Hughes, uh, 
owns Radio One TV. One lives there. I live there. Um, I can't believe it's the most racist place in Maryland. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure that the Washington Post uh, editorial board ever actually went out there. Um, but what I'll tell you is this: you know, I'll be down at the YMCA with my kids at the pool. There'll be people in conservative movement t-shirts and hats with black grandkids and they're pouring tons of love into their black grandkids every single weekend the and 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 what i can also tell you is that you know my cousins in west baltimore feel as abandoned uh if you will by the democratic party when it comes to any real vision about transforming you know, the level of poverty in West Baltimore, bringing jobs back for men who don't have uh, college degrees, for instance, as a lot of folks in Pasadena and in Dundalk do. And so we've got to, you know, tell me, like, what is it going to take? Like, we've got to create a politic in this country where we center the future of our children and where we actually lift up the mantle that Martin Luther King left all of us. Dr. King was not assassinated leading a desegregation battle he was assassinated leading a poor people's campaign trying to unite poor blacks and poor whites in the interest of all their kids that's the point that he was assassinated when he got to that place you know and if you just think for a second tom and i don't want to tear here but just just follow me um you think about black panther leaders a lot of them were killed but the one who was like systematically assassinated in the most aggressive way was fred hampton who was the former NAACP youth and college leader turned Black Panther, who had made a name for himself with the idea of a rainbow coalition. At the center of that was a partnership between the Black Panthers and and the Young Patriots. The Young Patriots were a white nationalist organization made up of poor whites who had migrated up to Chicago from the South, who saw themselves as disposable, both in the, the eyes of the economy and the military. All these guys were being drafted over to Vietnam, Black and white, and they came together in fact, before Megar Evers was assassinated, the NAACP leader who was, again, like assassinated in the most like aggressive way was a guy named Harry Moore in Florida in like 1951. The Klan, uh, his daughter, by the way, one of them lived in College Park or Silver Spring. I met her when I was president of the NAACP, still affected by the fact that when she went to sleep on Christmas night, again, I think approximately 1951, with her other siblings upstairs, this ranch house the parents went to sleep their parents went to sleep in a different wing of the house that was on the first floor and the clan snuck into their um the the crawl space under the parents bedroom and packed it so full of dynamite that when they let the fuse the parents were literally evaporated there wasn't a tooth left mm. from them well this is the sin if you will in the eyes of the clan that that harry and Her- and harriet moore had committed the year before, they had registered a million people to vote despite the poll tax. Like this is 15 years or so before the Civil Right, the uh, Voting Rights Act, and he wasn't just the leader of the NAACP in Florida. He was also the president of the Florida Progressive Party that was uniting working class whites and working class black folks. Yeah, I want to talk, I want to pick up on that point when we after we come back from a quick break, um, because you know your your political activism uh, has reflected uh, a good bit of that coalition building as well. And I'd like to pick up there when we come back. Ben Jealous is my guest. The book is called Never Forget: Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us.
This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Ben Jealous. He's the former head of the NAACP, a former candidate for governor of Maryland, and former president of People for the American Way. He will soon be serving as the executive director of the Sierra Club. His latest book is an intimate memoir and a broad argument for ending racism and intolerance. In a series of powerful essays, he explores the history of race and his own surprising racial pedigree. He riffs off of the wisdom of his grandmother and others from whom he has learned over the years. It's called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. Because our show was pre-recorded, we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. So, uh, Ben, when you uh, ran for governor, uh, you were able to put together uh, a coalition in the primary uh, that resembles very much the kinds of coalitions we were talking about before the break. Um, It was a surprise to uh, a few folks that you won that primary, a very crowded field. Um, And, uh, you know, you made the case uh, when you were on our show and and in other uh, venues that, you know, you could organize in a way that uh, could get you over the finish line. And that's exactly what you did. You talk in the book about uh, making a decision to uh, endorse and work on behalf of Bernie Sanders instead of Hillary Clinton, a person you knew better than you knew uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, and who was the more, uh, I suppose, you know, likely, uh, uh, certainly fa- favored not uh, as for the nomination. Um, but talk about those decisions and and how how these coalitions can be put together. And um, the the guy who you also know quite well, Wes Moore, who's become you know uh, historically the first black governor uh, in the state of Maryland, the only black governor right now in the fifty states. Um, yeah. wh- wh- what does he need to do to 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 keep to uh, keep this this uh, mosaic together? Yeah, you know well. You know, very, very proud of Wes, and uh, Wes was uh, a mentee of mine for like five minutes. We were in our early 20s. I had just come back from Oxford. He had just won. Um, you know, we're very proud in Baltimore, uh, black community. We have five black male Rhodes Scholars. They start with Kurt Schmoke, uh, who I, you know, was inspired by Paul Sarbanes, um, and I'm number three in birth order. Wes is, Wes is four. We've been close for a long time, uh, and I was I was happy to step aside for him to run this year. I'm focus on being a uh, uh, single dad to a couple of teenagers who uh, need dad at home. And, and we should uh, we should mention that another uh, Black Road Scholar is a guy named Fagan Harris, who you talk a yeah, lot about is, in the book, and he's now yeah. the chief of staff for Governor Moore. Yes, exactly. He is five in the birth order, <laughs> and um, a Black Road Scholar from Baltimore. Uh, and Fagan, yeah, Fagan's an incredible organizer, and I mean, they're going to do great. Um, you know, with that said, I ran... I ran in a different way when I ran for governor. Coming out of the Bernie Sanders campaign, I endorsed Bernie a large part because I called my white uncle, see who was he was he was going to vote for. He was in New Hampshire then. Now he's in Southern Maine, and in New Hampshire you can vote in either primary on the same day. And his wife picked up the phone, my aunt Johnny, and Aunt Johnny said, "Well, your uncle's either going to vote for Bernie or Trump. I'm not sure which. I got to get to work." And she, hung up the phone. <laughs> she also I don't think wanted wanted an argument with me. Um, and I, when I hung up the phone, I realized I really couldn't blame my He, uh, you know, raised a Democrat, born a Democrat, believed in the party, supported King, supported my work at the NAACP with great pride. Uh, 
he also felt increasingly that working men like him who make stuff, he's a mid-level manager in a, a lumberyard in Maine, were invisible to the Democratic Party. The old party FDR didn't care about them anymore, didn't have an agenda for them anymore. And and honestly, I recognize that sentiment, again, from, you know, just family conversations in West Baltimore about just being, feeling like, you know, over half the city is always in the half light, that there's just, you know, ever since Bethlehem Steel closed, there hasn't been a real vision for putting, you know, the neighborhoods back to work. And, uh, and so I knew that he was attracted to those two because they were the two candidates who were speaking directly to men like him. And obviously, I had no interest in supporting Donald Trump. I didn't. I didn't you know, trust the man at all. But Bernie Sanders seemed sincere. He had been in the Congress of Racial Equality like my dad when he was young. And uh, his whole life, you could look back and he was, only question, did he start with racial justice and get to economic justice or did he start with economic justice and get to racial justice? And so I decided to endorse him because primaries are fundamentally about the politics of the party and its, you know, and its, and its vision and its program. I assumed Hillary would win. I wanted to make sure that the that uh, the Democratic Party had the best shot at uniting the people of this country, and Bernie was the one who really had the voice of FDR, if you will, championing an, an economy that would truly lift all boats. And you know, I started out in that race doing what like Black civil rights leaders retired do for presidential candidates, which is going to all the black places. I was in Chicago, I was in Detroit, I was in South Carolina. And then suddenly, Tom, I found myself on a plane to Missouri, and I should have paid attention to the fact they called it Missouri and not Missouri. Missouri means we would have landed in St. Louis or Kansas City, and I would have been doing what I did in those other places. Missouri meant we were going to the rest of the state, and we landed in the Ozarks. And there was a moment where there we were, we're in the Ozarks, the crowd, um, a lot of guys in deer hunting camouflage, like probably half the men were in deer hunting camouflage. And um bernie's getting to the the point in his speech when he's going to call for the police to stop killing unarmed black women and unarmed black men and i get nervous because i don't know how this crowd's going to respond and i'm on fire for all the economic justice issues that apparently have brought these folks to this place but i got to make sure that you know they're on fire to fix some of the gravest issues facing facing black people too like you know we're going to be a coalition let's let's all throw down for each other and I'm just afraid that's going to throw me off if this crowd is tepid and Bernie gets to that point of the speech. And he puts out the call for the police to stop killing unarmed black women, unarmed black men. And the crowd responds with a ferocity as intense as Baltimore or Detroit or Chicago. And half those guys in deer hem and camouflage jump up in their seats and throw their fists in the air. And Tom, you know what? You know what hit me in that moment? Just how much my cousins in West Baltimore loved watching the Dukes of Hazard when we were kids. Hmm, right. <laughs> like, Boss Hog, Hog was bad to all of us. You know, and the reality is, you look at the police abuse statistics, working people, poor people of all colors get roughed up by the cops too much, pretty much everywhere in the country. And, and Bernie was tapping in to sort of a deeper truth. In fact, you know, an interesting thing in that race, one of the things that gave me real hope Bernie produced the most popular political ad of that season in Baltimore, um, uh, interviewing a guy who you've probably interviewed before, Chris Wilson, wrote the book, The the Master Plan. Well, part of the story about how Chris got that book contract was Bernie came to film an ad on me, and Chris was 
setting up the set. And I said, you guys really need to talk to him. And I think the ad guys like saw Willie Horton because Chris had been convicted of murder. Chris turned his life around in a, tr- in a tremendous way. And the, the guy he killed was a, a gangbanger who uh, was connected to the guy who had raped his mom. I mean, Chris had all kinds of think you know, sort of street justification, if you will, for dealing with that guy the way he did. But he'd also turned himself around in a profound way. And eventually they, they, they heard what I was saying and they cut the ad. And that ad of Chris Wilson talking about how he turned his life around and redeemed himself, got a million clicks in one day in the Bernie Sanders campaign. It was part of how we won Missouri. It was part of how we won Michigan. And if it had started a couple weeks earlier, we probably would have won Illinois with that ad. And so, you know, those experiences, seeing the way the folks in the Ozarks responded, seeing the the way that um, folks in Chicago responded the same way the messaging around jobs, and, you know, and in Baltimore that my uncle did up in Maine, taught me that there was a deeper coalition to be built and that we actually could be allies in a profound way and that we need to stop judging books by their cover and just listen to people. And so the same thing here in Maryland, you know, we didn't raise the money that we needed to, to really break through against an incumbent, but we did even in the general get more than 1 million votes. You know, as of that point, it had never happened. And, and as I travel around the state, I meet a lot of working class people, black and white, who that was, you know, the first time they had voted in a very long time. For some, it was the first time that they voted. Uh, and again, again, the whole experience gave me hope that uh, we can build those coalitions here. We can build them in Maryland. And West, I think, is starting in the right place, which is to really focus on education, really focus on the urgent need to make education connect to the economy for all our kids. Fagan is a real uh, kind of a ace in the hole, if you will, for that. He understands workforce and education and the nexus between the two probably better than anybody that I've ever met. Uh, and I have great hope that uh, they will really get Maryland moving in the right direction by focusing on the common needs of all our kids. And is criminal justice reform, we just have a less than a minute left, is criminal justice reform the likely place where people can come together. You talk about uh, folks like Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist, uh, who worked on uh, incarceration, who agreed with you on, on uh, the incarceration issue when you were working on that uh, a few years ago. Uh, is that the, the likely place? Because here we have you know, yet another uh, moment where supposedly uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the tide is, uh, at least you know, people are paying attention to criminal justice reform. They're, they're paying attention to the George Floyd uh, Police Act, uh, given what's happened uh, in the terrible situation in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, with Tyree Nichols, um, is that is that the best place to start still when it comes to, you know, building those kinds of coalitions? Yeah, the uh, criminal justice has been a place of great partnership and surprising partnership, and it was that for me with multiple Republican governors and Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist when I ran the NAACP. Going forward, there are great coalitions to be built, built around workforce development and around building stuff in this country again. The Inflation Reduction Act, the Associated Infrastructure Bill, I mean, it even has people talking about producing steel in Baltimore. You know, there is an opportunity here to build pro- pragmatic coalitions around creating jobs and building a new green economy here. And most importantly, connecting young people's education to real opportunities in the economy. That's where we fall down every day. 
You know, our building trades are shrinking. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough programmers. And yet we have a surplus of young people who can't find good jobs. We can we can fix it. You just got to connect the supply to the demand in a smart way like they do in countries like Germany. Ben Jealous, his latest book is Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. Congratulations on the book. It's an excellent read. I really appreciate uh, the book and your time. Thanks so much. And uh, best of luck. Good wishes in this new adventure with the Sierra Club. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for us today. Thanks for being with us. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great day. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR.